Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now turn with me to Ezekiel. Chapter 1, where another precious man receives a call from God. And I think it helps to stand with Ezekiel on the banks of the Kibar River and look and try and imagine what he saw. His call was just as spectacular <coughs> as was Hosea's. Ezekiel chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In my thirteenth year, in the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw a vision of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River, in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. On the left, the face of an ox. I left out the human being, did I? I'll just do that again. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the faces of a human being. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. On the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering their body. Each one went straight ahead. 
Wherever the Spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and the lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the Spirit would go, they would go. And the wheels would rise along with them, because the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what happened to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire. The brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so that the, so the radiance was around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of the one speaking. We're going to start this morning with uh, some honesty. I'd like to see a show of hands if you feel like you've absolutely understood everything that we've just read. Hands up. We have a liar at the back, but everyone else has been pretty honest, so thank you, I appreciate that. What we're looking at this morning is actually one of the most incredible, most unbelievable, most challenging passages in the Scriptures, I think, to wrap your head around. 
We've got incredible living beings. We've got fire and lightning. There's all kinds of amazing stuff happening here. And I think if we're going to understand it, we need to put it into its rightful context. So Ezekiel is beginning to write this book, and there are three distinct phases to the book in which he writes. In 593 BC, and he's on the shores of the Kibar River in Babylon, modern-day Iraq. Now, if you can place modern-day Iraq onto a map, you're probably in a fairly small crowd of people in this room anyway, no judgment. But you've also probably reached the point where the relatable aspects of this passage begin in. In fact, from the very first verse of this chapter, we're leaping into a series of vivid descriptions of heavenly creatures and wheels and lights and electricity and rushing wings and all kinds of things that we just can't really wrap our minds around. In fact, there's so much to take in here, I think, that really the best way that we can even understand it is to take it as a challenge, to try to understand something of the glory of our God. Now, if we're, under, if we're going to understand this vision as Ezekiel himself would have experienced it, I think we need to understand him. And that's going to mean looking at two things today. So if you're following along on a sheet, these are going to be your two main points. We're going to have a look at Ezekiel's world, first of all. And second, we're going to look at Ezekiel's vision. But I'm going to open with something that I'm going to show you on the screen. And I'm actually not going to give you any context for it whatsoever. I'm just going to put some verses up, and I'll read them to you. This is Ezekiel's context. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. The elders are gone from the city gate. The young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. From Mount Zion, which lies desolate, with jackals prowling over it. But you, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you forget us? Why do you forsake us for so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Now, if you have a Bible in front of you and it's open to Ezekiel chapter 1, the only thing you need to do to see this context is to turn back a single page. This is from the book Immediately Pirates, the book of Lamentations. It's written by the prophet Jeremiah. So this is Ezekiel's context, both in terms of the book itself and historically, and that alone, I think, is utterly profound when you think about the things that we've read. This chapter, this, and I think it's fair to say it's an incomparable chapter in many respects, speaking of the glory of God, it's not being written in the middle of some wonderful revelation like you see in the Apostle John later on in the Scriptures. It's not the experience of someone like Paul who assuming it is him, was caught up into the third heaven and saw things he couldn't even express. This vision, this visitation, is occurring at the darkest point in the history of the people of God. So what on earth is going on? What's happening here for Ezekiel? And why here and why now? 
Well, to understand that, we need to start by looking at Ezekiel's world. Now, Ezekiel was born in better times than what we've just read from Lamentations. He entered the world in 622 BC and he was the son of a priest, Buzi, in a land that was currently under the reign of the godly king Josiah. You might remember Josiah. He embarked on a project to renew and revitalise and uh, reconstruct parts of the temple that had fallen into disrepair. And when he did so, they found a book of the law. And when he read it, he wept. And he ordered it to be read in front of all of the people of Israel. And they read it together and they wept because they realised they'd stopped following the law that God had given them through Moses. So Hilkiah the priest was the one who read these things out loud. And when he did so, Israel celebrated the Passover precisely as they'd been commanded under Moses for the first time in many, many years. These were the days of Ezekiel's youth and they were spent under the reign of this godly king, Josiah. And he was studying the scriptures. He was in training for the priesthood. And yet, Ezekiel would never enter the priesthood in Israel. You see, these prophetic books in this particular part of the scriptures, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah in particular, they all exist in a period that's characterised by a great conflict that happens between uh, Egypt and Babylon. And it's that conflict that actually brings the, the godly king Josiah to his end. Josiah gets it in his head that he needs to curry some favour with Babylon because they're in the ascendancy. And so he rides out to try and hinder the Egyptian army. And he's actually... Uh, addressed personally by the Pharaoh, Pharaoh Necho, who says to him, what on earth are you doing? God sent me out to judge Babylon. Don't stand against me. But Josiah doesn't listen. He tries to slow down the Egyptian army and prevent them from getting to a future battle with Babylon and is killed in the effort. The years that follow the death of Josiah see a number of godless kings upon the throne of Judah and their allegiances vary from Egypt to Babylon and back again. They can't really figure out which side they want back. But no matter how much their allegiances vary, they never go back to the God of their forefathers. So it's in Ezekiel's teen years then that the first wave of God's judgment comes. God's had enough of the sin of Judah. And it's the fulfilment of a series of prophecies that are written by Isaiah and by Jeremiah. Let me read just a couple of verses to you. This is Isaiah chapter 39. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. There's a bit of backstory to this, actually. The king Hezekiah had grown ill. And when he grew ill, Babylon sent him the ancient equivalent of a get-well card. They sent a messenger who came into Judah, and he said, The king of Babylon says he hopes he feel better really soon. And Hezekiah was so blown away by the generosity of the king of Babylon that he took that messenger into the temple and he showed him all of the wealth and the riches that had been amassed as part of the temple system. And the messenger went back to Babylon and said, you won't guess what they've got stashed away. Babylon remembered and they came back and they raised the city and the temple and they took everything away. 
And exactly as we read here, some of those people became eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So this is 606 BC. So Jehoiakim, who's the son of Josiah, who's the descendant of Hezekiah, he's refused to pay tribute to Babylon. He's back in Egypt. He's not interested in what Babylon has to offer. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar attacks the city and he claims his tribute and he claims the exiles of Judah as the payment that's owed on his debt. The king, the royal family, the priests, a thousand craftsmen and as many as 10,000 artisans are taken into exile. Could be as many as 30,000 people in all dragged off to Babylon. And for the first time actually, Nebuchadnezzar enters Babylon on his return as king because his father's died while he's been away raiding Judea. And that whole story is the backdrop of the book of Daniel actually. Because he, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, or as we often know them better, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they're among those 30,000 people that are carried off. And it's a perfect fulfilment of Isaiah's words, which were written 150 years earlier. Now ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar allows the king, he allows Jehoiakim to return to Jerusalem to rule. But Jehoiakim, again, decides to play both sides of this great conflict. He stops paying tribute because the continued conflict between Egypt and Babylon seems to leave Babylon weakened for a while. And he doesn't think they're going to care about tribute from a little backwater like Judah. But by that point, Babylon's tolerance with Israel has just come to a complete end. And even Jehoiakim's death isn't enough to stop Nebuchadnezzar from storming back into the country. It won't set his anger aside. And so Nebuchadnezzar returns to Jerusalem and he lays siege to it. And the city only lasts a month before it falls. The new king, Jeconiah, and the remaining craftsmen and priests, and in fact even this time the priests who are in training, are hauled off to Babylon. And this is where Ezekiel comes in. Many of these people, including Ezekiel, will never return to Israel. They'll never return to Judea. And so here we are, at 25 years of age, Ezekiel is dragged off in captivity into Babylon. And five years later, in his 30th year, we see him sitting on the banks of the Kibar River with a bunch of other exiles, presumably feeling pretty depressed about the situation in life. And Ezekiel wastes no time in telling us what he's seen. In my 30th year, he says, on the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now when we discuss these types of events in the scriptures, I think it's really important that we know what a vision is, what it means. I don't believe the Bible is is presenting Ezekiel as being in some kind of weird mystic trance. Let me put it that way. I don't believe that's the case for any who saw those these types of visions, whether it's Isaiah or Stephen, the martyr, you might remember, who saw heaven opened and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. I don't think it's true of John the Apostle either in the Revelation. I don't believe he's just seeing things. And there's a clue to what is happening here, hidden in the word in Hebrew. The word in Hebrew for vision is marot. And what it means is glass. He's seen through something, is the implication, to see something else. He's being allowed to see through a window into a new world that he's never been able to lay eyes on with his human experience. That's what's happening here. 
And so he watches and what he sees is overwhelming. And he says this, I looked and I saw an immense windstorm coming out of the north with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. I love that word, immense. And it's a theme that recurs all the way through this vision. And what you have to imagine here is that there's a storm coming out of the north that absolutely dwarfs the apostle, the sorry, prophet in scale. It's something so large that it would be profoundly terrifying if you were to go outside and look out and see this immense dark cloud coming to you with flashing lightning on the horizon. It would be terrifying. And so Ezekiel is wondering, what on earth am I seeing here? And this idea of God's glory being wrapped up in a storm and closed in fire isn't new to Ezekiel either. You can think of the burning bush, for example, which was on fire but not consumed. You can think about the Shekinah glory that was present in the temple and in the tabernacle before that. You can think again about the Shekinah glory that went before Israel in the Exodus as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. You could even think about the giving of the law atop Mount Sinai where the earth shook and the lightning was so fierce that the Hebrews approached Moses and said, please just keep God at a distance. And I think that kind of fear is an appropriate response to what these people are seeing. The psalmist actually describes God in similar terms. We don't often think about the psalms as being particularly apocalyptic, but let's have a look at these verses. It says, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him, even to his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. Now again, notice the grand scale here. It's the Lord descending and the mountains shaking and trembling. The heavens are being warped by his presence and the winds are being whipped up into a frenzy at his touch. There's even elements here that I think often as Christians we're not comfortable with. God's wrapped in darkness here. There's something haunting, there's something terrifying about this, isn't there? And these same ideas are present in Isaiah, like we read earlier. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried out to another and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. (coughs) It's impressive, isn't it? It's, It's daunting. And there's something bigger here, I think, than just mere scale. It's more than just quaking mountains and filled temples and... Immense clouds. 
You see, in each of these verses, God's presence, yes, it's immense and his glory extends to the whole earth. And in Isaiah's case, it's a, a powerful display of his majesty. But in the context of what we're looking at here, there's actually something that's more immediate and more pressing and for Ezekiel would have been even more terrifying than just the mere vision of God. That's a big claim, so let me back it up. I'm going to put a couple of verses together for you, and we've seen them already. Psalm 18, verse 6, He heard my voice from his temple. Isaiah 6, verse 1, The train of his robe filled the temple. Remember for a moment who Ezekiel is. He's a trained priest. And while he's never ministered in the temple, because of the exile, he understands this language well. He knew the Psalms. He had Isaiah. He would have known, too, the words of Exodus 19, where we see something very similar. Thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain. That's Sinai. And Mount Sinai was enveloped in smoke because the Lord descended in the fire. Yeah, Ezekiel would have known and sung Psalm 18 in the temple courts. The Psalms, remember, are the Jewish hymn book. They still sing the Psalms today, written as is. Definitely he would have known the words of Isaiah. And the nature and sequence of these biblical texts is really important because what Ezekiel is seeing with his own eyes here on the banks of the Kibar River in Iraq is not just, and you'll forgive me for using this language, it's not just a visitation from God. What Ezekiel is seeing here is the visible manifestation of the glory of God And since the establishment of the kingdom under Solomon, that only occurred, it only existed in one place, in the temple. And more specifically, in the Holy of Holies. And the train of his robe filled the temple. So now put yourself into Ezekiel's place and recognise what it is that he's seeing. This isn't just... Again, I apologise, a representation of God's power. It is quite specifically the manifestation of God's presence that throughout all of Israel's history has only been confined to very specific holy places. To Sinai, to the tabernacle, to the temple. And Ezekiel has learned enough that he would understand not just whose presence he's standing in, but what the implication of that presence is. And Ezekiel knows that the glory of the Lord has departed from the temple in Judah. Now the Lord will explain that to Ezekiel later in the book. He'll take him in the spirit back to Judah and to stand on the threshold of the temple in Jerusalem. And what Ezekiel sees there is heartbreaking. The people have completely forgotten about Josiah's reforms. And they've dedicated themselves to the idolatrous gods of the nations around them. The walls of the temple that used to be carved with cherubim and seraphim and pomegranates and all kinds of wonderful things are now carved with idolatrous symbols. Every creeping thing and beast is the phrase that's used. Detestable things. The elders of Israel are worshipping carved idols and clouds of incense in the darkened chambers and passages that are part of the temple walls. 
There's a huge idol to Asherah in the temple court. And there are women weeping at the entrance to the temple. But they're not crying about the idolatry. They're crying because it's the time of year where the Babylonians weep over the death of their god, Tammuz. And between the altar and the porch, there are men standing, the elders of Israel, as they're described, with their backs to the Holy of Holies, and they're bowing in worship of the sun. And so the glory of the Lord has left the temple because it's about to come under an unprecedented judgment at the hand of God. But the scriptures tell us that God does nothing without revealing his plan to the servants, the prophets. That's a quote. And so God himself rends the heavens, to use Isaiah's words. He mounts his chariot and flanked by living creatures and burning with cloud and fire. And he comes down to tell Ezekiel what's about to unfold back in his homeland. Let's take a look at that. Let's look at verse 4. I, Ezekiel, looked and saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All of them had four faces and four wings. And the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They didn't turn as they moved. Now it's here that we begin to see some distinctions emerge between Isaiah's vision, which we saw earlier, and Ezekiel's. Later on, we don't have the context of Revelation in Ezekiel's day, but if we read those passages too... John would develop on this vision even further and explain more about what it is that we're seeing. But to begin with here, I'd like you to take note of Ezekiel's perspective on the things that he's seen. He's looking up for a start. This is, remember, an immense cloud coming in from the north. And as a result, what he's seeing are things that are underneath the wings of these living creatures. He's seeing the hands, which another perspective might not allow you to see. That seems like a small point, but there's a reason I'm drawing your attention to this. So he's looking under the wings of these living creatures, the cherubim, as they're called later. If we were to go back to Isaiah, we'd see that he's actually looking down on the same scene. And so his focus isn't on the cherubim underneath the throne, it's on the seraphim who are above the throne. And it's those seraphim that form a covering over the throne of God, and they're the ones crying out, holy, 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 ceaselessly day and night. Now you might take note here too that I have not used the word angel in speaking about these creatures. That's a conscious decision on my part, and this is something that you can look into for yourselves. People disagree on this one. But the word angel is a biblical description of the role of a class of beings. It means messenger, that's the entire meaning of the term. And it's never used to describe a species or a type of heavenly creature. And you never see that word applied to seraphim or cherubim, ever. It doesn't happen in the scriptures. They're always given that name, that designation. And never angel. And so that's why they're called living creatures here. But what weird creatures they are. 
These four beings are in the midst of a fire. and The fire is flashing back and forth with lightning and coloured light. It's sort of an electrical charge type of picture that we're seeing here. And, and they're the colour of glowing metal. If we were to go back to the, uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use the word electrum to describe the way this metal looks. An electrum is a, a combination, a melding of gold and silver together, and it, it takes on quite a, a unique sort of almost glow to it just based on the fact that it's made of two such precious metals. And this is the form that they have, right? They're, they're, they're bright and they're burning and, and it's like molten electrum. There's, there's a, a, a vivid light to all of these things. And the form of these creatures too is, is also utterly unique. And so in appearance or in likeness, their bodies are human. They have a torso, they have legs, they have arms, they have the face of a man too. But they have four wings. I wasn't really going to talk about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. If you go back and you look at angels in the scriptures, you never find they have wings. There's not a verse that says that angels have wings. You can mull that over and do what you like with it. It's not an important point, but it's an interesting point. But nonetheless, they've got four wings, and two of them are extending outward for flight, and with two of them, they're covering their bodies, which is a sign of perhaps both a defensive presence, we'll come back to that in a minute, but also humility in the presence of God. They recognise whose presence they're standing in. Now Ezekiel actually gives us a clue to the role of the cherubim, but he doesn't do it here. And in fact, the clue is a little unusual. It comes from chapter 28. And he's not talking about any of these cherubim. He's talking about Satan. And he says this, You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. And I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Now I'm sure you can see some consistency between Ezekiel's vision and what he's describing in chapter 28. But the point for us is that these cherubim are anointed guardians of the holy places of God. Although they appear in some respects in the likeness of man, that's certainly not their full story either, is it? So let's move on. Let's look at verse 10. Ezekiel says, Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. On the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on the other side. And each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. Now this is incredible imagery, isn't it? I mean, we have this appearance of fire and lightning again. There's this sort of electrical movement to it all and it's flashing back and forth between the creatures but it's also almost like a there's a, a, a remnant of power or energy or something like that when they move and they are moving and I think it's fair to say that everything that we're seeing here is completely foreign to our experience but the impression that it's leaving I think is what's important there's vibrancy here, there's life, there's action, there's movement, there's strength, there's power. 
And it's present, actually, even in the creatures' faces. Each of them has four faces. They've got the human, the lion, the ox, and the eagle. And if you take all of those things together, they're all masters of their domain, aren't they? They're powerful creatures. And so I think what we're seeing here is that when we take all of these images together, we're seeing a godly insight into his own creation with all of its unbridled creativity, variety, glory and majesty. And of course, there's one who rules over it all. Now, it might seem like an unusual take to say that these creatures are representative of God's creation, particularly considering how unusual the creatures themselves are, but there's a secret to it, I think. There's a point here that we can see in the way that this entire throne is constructed, this mobile chariot, if you will. Remember, Isaiah tells us what's above the throne. He sees the seraphim who are crying, holy, holy, holy. And those creatures, I believe, are representative of the whole realm of heaven. And we haven't the time to go into that today. But below them, we have the throne itself upon whom sits one and whose characteristics we'll see in a moment. But below the throne is what Ezekiel describes as a vault. It's a blue, it's a crystalline vault. It's an expanse and it's actually described very much like our sky is described in Genesis chapter 1. And beneath that vault, that sky, is the living creatures or the cherubim. Finally, below the cherubim, we have one of the more unusual parts of what is already an unusual passage. It's the wheels and they're in contact with the earth and we'll see them a little bit more in a moment too, in a bit more detail. But if you take all these things together, I think there's a picture that emerges, and that is that what we're seeing here is a a mobile representation of the entire structure of God's creation. And more than that, it's an emphatic declaration of the kingship of the one who sits on the throne above all the things in heaven and all the things on earth. There's a verse in Isaiah, actually, that says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And that fits very nicely here, I think. The throne above the vault and all of the earthly representations below. Isaiah is referring there to the structure of earth and heaven. And I think if we understand that, we can begin to see the role that these cherubim play, both as representatives of the whole creation, but they're also guardians and protectors of the glory of God from the things that exist in that creation. If you think back for a minute to Genesis 3 and the fall, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were expelled from the garden. And God placed cherubim with a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden. Not just so that Adam and Eve couldn't return and have life, but because they could no longer be in his presence. And I think that explains the elements we're seeing here too. These creatures are bronze and that indicates uh, a process of purification, of judgment, of fire, of burning. There's cloud which veils our eyes from seeing things that mortals shouldn't behold. There's fire which is the burning, radiant presence of God. You might remember the New Testament says our God is a consuming fire. And all of these things come together to present a cohesive image of a God who is the almighty ruler of heaven and earth. And when you think about it that way, you can realise that the living creatures are featured here not to draw attention to themselves, 
but to give glory to the one who is enthroned above them. Their features, their characteristics, even their own glory, all of those things are inherited from the one who sits on the throne and they reflect back upon him to magnify his glory as creator, as king, and certainly as God. And in a chapter that is genuinely difficult to wrap your mind around, this is the big picture. And in fact, I would argue that this is the big picture not just here, but in all of the scriptures that everything that's written here for us, every phrase, every description, every metaphor, every symbol, all of it points back to the one who sits upon this throne in this chapter. And so what's stunning then to bring this back is that he's here at all on the banks of the Kibar River in Iraq. He's enthroned on high, he's surrounded by heavenly creatures and he's definitely there before a terrifying and presumably quivering Ezekiel. And I think you can see something of the perspective of the prophet in these verses too. Let's move on. This is verse 15. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. Those faces belonging to the creatures, not the wheels, by the way. This was the appearance and the structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made of a wheel, intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels didn't change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome. And all four rims were full of eyes all around. That is weird. These wheels, that's ophanim in the Hebrew, they're inanimate objects and they form part of the construction of this heavenly chariot. Now, there is argument over whether these beings are spirit beings themselves of some kind. But I think there's a couple of clues here that suggest that they're not. And the first is that they have no will to act or move on their own. And we can see that in this passage. I'm not going to read those verses to you again, but you can see that their, their movement is dependent on the spirit and their will and the spirit of the living creatures. They don't have a spirit of their own is the point that's being made here. I think the other point of note is that they're actually described in contrast to the cherubim. The cherubim are living creatures, whereas these are just wheels. And yet, nonetheless, they bear some really unusual characteristics. I really hard to find a good image that would match the biblical text. It's incredibly difficult. <laughs> but the image up here is about the closest thing I could find. And I, I suspect that these two intersecting wheels operate in a spherical manner, by which I mean they're not actually fixed at right angles. They move within one another. Now that affords the chariot of God the ability to travel in any direction, not just north, south, east, west. It can travel in any direction it chooses to go. Any direction the spirit wishes to go, as the passage says. And that concept, I think, is present in their construction, too. They're covered in eyes. What does that mean? Well, eyes can see. And these eyes are seeing anything in any direction because they're always facing outward, always looking outward. They can see where they've come from, and they can see where they're going. There's a sense of awareness here. And I suspect, again, that reflects back on God. It's showing that God sees everything in the past, he sees everything in the present, he sees everything in the future, and that's true in both time and spatial dimensions. 
He's God. He's omniscient. Now, much like the cherubim, I don't believe these wheels are present just for practical purposes because God obviously doesn't need a chariot to get around. Certainly he doesn't need wheels on a chariot to move around the earth. And so, while I do think that this, this vision is literal, and let me be really careful to say this, I'm not suggesting even for a moment that Ezekiel is not seeing the things that he's clearly seeing here. Remember, we'll go back to that Hebrew word, marot, meaning glass. He's seeing these things. They're real. So the wheels do have a very real function, but the point of them really is to teach us something about the nature and the character of the one who sits on the throne. They're a representation of God's omnipresence, his ability to be in all places at all times, and also his omniscience, seeing all things and knowing all things at all times, and certainly to his omnipotence. Ezekiel says they are high and awesome in scale, their rings are high and awesome. And all of that reflects back on the one who sits on the throne. So let's look at him. Verse 22. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault their wings were stretched out one toward the other and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lattice lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. These are incredible verses. There's, I think, a real sense in which you can imagine Ezekiel just looking up at this immense structure in front of his eyes, Supported by cherubim and massive, awesome wheels covered in eyes. What do you do with that information? And he sees this stretched out vault, this firmament, to use the biblical term, and it's shining like a radiant crystal blue. And all of these elements are coming together to represent and and to present to Ezekiel even this one, this unique being as the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who sits enthroned on high in glory and majesty, the incomparable, even incomprehensible, certainly, God of all. And in fact, even despite their own glory, despite their own might and power and otherworldly grace, the cherubim here are silent in his presence. They lower their wings in a a sign of submission and humility before this omnipotent one upon the throne. Their voices rush forward like thunder. Their voices are powerful like water. Their voices are like the tumult of a mighty army. And they're silent in his presence. And as Ezekiel, little Ezekiel, raises his eyes to look at the wheels and the living creatures and the expanse, he sees, what? One whose figure is like that of a man. A man. Remember who this is. He doesn't have the New Testament. This is a Jew. God is not a man to a Jew. What is he seeing? Who is this on the throne? This is a staggering revelation to a Jew and a priest, no less. That one who appears in likeness as a man should be sitting on the throne of heaven and that he should be the centrepiece of the temple presence of God. What is this? 
And look at him. Look at this man. Verse 27. Ah, I've lost a slide. Let me read it to you. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That's a really odd phrase. That's a mouthful, actually. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel knows what he's seeing, even if he doesn't understand the implications yet. But he certainly knows how to respond. He says, when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speak. Here on this throne, high and lifted up, sits one whose very throne room unites all of heaven and earth and is blazing with fire and glory. He's surrounded by brilliant light. And yet, even in some sense here, he's obscured, isn't he? He's like the radiance of the clouds on a rainy day. He's not quite perfectly visible. He's obscured almost by a mist. He's not seen in perfect clarity. And even still there's enough here that Ezekiel falls on his face. And the conclusion that we should reach here is the same conclusion that was forced on him by this vision on the banks of the river Kibar that we too should fall down before our God and worship him. We should worship him because of his beauty and his glory. Absolutely. We should worship him because of his incomparable otherness, his otherworldliness. Absolutely. But above all things, we should worship him because he is the one who unites heaven and earth. That's the vision here. This is a man who is being worshipped by seraphim in heaven, those who cover their eyes and cry, holy, 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 because what else can they do? He's so great. He's so glorious. And so they cry without ceasing. They uphold his, his glory and his majesty in the heavenly realm. And then below are the cherubim who protect his glory in the earthly realm. This is the one who in all of his great omnipotent power holds together heaven and earth as king and as creator and as judge. And this, the scriptures tell us, is the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. This is Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Remember the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord? God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
This is the big picture again, isn't it? Being painted by Ezekiel's vision. It's heaven, everything represented above the throne. And it's earth represented by everything below the throne. And all of it united in him who is seated on the throne. And it has to be this way because when God's own chosen people worship idols in the temple, birds and beasts and crawling things, this glorified man comes and he has to come as a judge. He comes in fire and cloud and fury with all of the severity and the decisiveness of lightning. But he also comes as that same broken world's hope. The one who holds all things together and the one ultimately who will reconcile all things to himself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And in the face of all of that grandeur and and overwhelming glory stands Ezekiel crushed on the ground on his face. Awed and overwhelmed by the lightning and the fire and the cloud, but more than that, by the one who's holding it all together. And so he falls on his face in worship and in fear. And you have to wonder, is it any is it any wonder that the writer to the Hebrews calls this man, this one on the throne, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Again, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. But what's really beautiful for you and I is that we know something that Ezekiel never knew. (laughs) We know that The glory of God has a name. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Glorious, radiant, powerful, authoritative, gentle, resolute, compassionate, immense and beautiful Jesus. That's who sits on this Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we don't pretend to understand these things. But Father, have mercy on us if we don't understand and recognise the one who sits on the throne. The only name under heaven given by which we must be saved. It's Jesus. And we thank you, Father, that he is the one who unites heaven and earth, not just as creator, not just as a judge, but also as the one who makes peace by his blood shed on the cross. Father, would you grant us a better understanding, a clearer vision of exactly who it is we serve, that we might understand his glory to the point, even in us, Lord, where it makes us fall on our face and worship We give you glory, Father. We give you praise for all you are, for your majesty, for your incomparable creation, for all that you've done, 
but more than all else, we give you glory for the one who comes in appearance in the likeness of the glory of the Lord and all that he has done for us. You are worthy of our praise, God, and we worship you. Amen.